Thank you for joining us for another powerful message from the teaching ministry of Destiny Church. We hope that you'll be challenged and stretched to grow through today's message. But most of all, we hope that you'll encounter the Father's love. If you're in the greater Mobile Bay area, please join us for our weekend worship celebration. Or if you're looking for a church family excited for a revival, please come join us in bringing heaven to earth. Um, Let's say this like we mean it. We only have a few more weeks for this one. And then God has given us our new declaration. We'll be sharing that with you in a few weeks. But this whole year, we're aligning ourselves with his word. And that's not something that we're going to stop. It's just this, this year, we're making ourselves really aware that we have to live in alignment with God's word. Because everything you do is going to flow out of that. Right? Ready? All right. I will constantly guard my heart. And align it with God's holy word for everything that I do flows from it. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We'll get there in just a little bit, a little bit later in the message. Luke chapter 15, the verses 1 through 7 is where we'll go. And so this this whole uh, series that we're going to be doing is it revolves around the reasons for the season. How many of you guys have ever heard? I know you have. Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, um, and that's true. So don't any religious folks email me later and, you know, Pastor Ryan, you know, don't, don't do that. Jesus is the reason for the season. But there is a greater reason than Jesus. What? Greater than Jesus? Yeah, just hang on. Because if you read the scripture in its context, you know that Jesus, he's not all about thinking about himself. We're, think, we're the ones that are all about thinking about Jesus. But I was telling our volunteers this morning as we were talking about love and how to love people well, like God truly, this blows our mind. This blows my mind because humans are not this way. But God is like, hey, you want to love me? Just love people. I saw somebody, uh, somebody the other day uh, on their Facebook. They're like, I just don't like people. And this is a Christian. And I'm like, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because Jesus loves people. He loves people. And, you know, as I'm looking at this, I'm going, you know, hey, I ain't going to touch that. You're going to have to work that out with Jesus. Jesus is going to have to convict you and, and, and work on your heart. But I'm like, if you're a person that, well, I'm just not a people person. Lie. You are a people person. The enemy has told you you're not a people person and you are believing that lie. Well, I'm just, I like being by myself. Well, Jesus liked being by himself too, himself too. He would go to the bottom of the boat and sleep and he'd get away. And there's times that you can be by yourself. But God has created us to be in community. We just did an entire series on koinonia about community. God didn't build us to, to go off somewhere and be by ourselves. And God says this, Jesus replicates this. He, he reiterates it. And he says, listen, if, you, if you're really interested in me, just love people well. That is so anti-human. 
or it's human, it's anti-God. You you understand what I'm saying? I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm trying to get it out. It's not natural because the human tendency is greedy and selfish and I want my needs met, but that's not how God is. Jesus is like, you know, if you really want to love me, just love people. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wraps that whole uh, thing up. And he says, the latter is equal to the first. In other words, love people well and you're automatically loving God. But a lot of people spend so much time at church or different things trying to love God and worship God and serve God and do all these things, but they don't love people well. So it's kind of like you're canceling it out. And I'm just telling you, like, don't love me and get up all in my face with all that goody, goody, love, 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 Pastor Rife, and treat my family wrong. Don't do that. Because if I'd rather you do all that to my family, love them well. And when I see you loving them well, you, oh man, that just touches my heart. That loves me. That, that shows love to me. That's how God is with us. And love, I said it during the worship, love is one of those things the world has perver- perverted and it turns love into lust. And a lot of times we think lust as only in a sexual connotation, but you can lust after things. It's called covetousness. You can lust after things. And sometimes churches can even lust for things. Like we're going to, we got to love our community. We got to love. Well, we've got to love, but the whole point of our loving is really, we just want them to come here so that we can have more people in the seats. I mean, there's empty seats in here, have been since, you know, the beginning, but I I would love to have more people in those seats. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I start doing it and my motivation is to get people in the seats, that's wrong. We just love, we don't lust after people. We love people. And you just love people whether they're going to come to this church or not. You just love them because it's the right thing to do. And there are 7.8 billion people, so they say, on the planet. I don't know who counts them. But they say there's 7.8 billion people on the planet. And this is what the scripture says. That there's never a moment that every 7.8 billion people cease to be on the mind of God. How is that possible? And it's not like God's worrying about them. It's not like he's going, oh God, Zuri got that thing going on, man. In her world, I got to keep my eye on that. And over here, I got Braden, you know, he's got this that he's, you know, trying to work through. And over here, Brian's dealing with this and, you know, you know, whoever in Shanghai and whoever in London and who, it's not that. It is, he loves us so much that he wants to constantly be thinking about us. I look at this as my relationship with my own kids a lot of times. You know, I'll text my son. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. My daughter lives in, uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee. And there'll just be times like I will text them these little messages and they'll just, 
they'll just be little things that as soon as I text them, they'll know what it means. And I text Noah the other day. I just said, who's the best boy in the whole wide world? I just send it to him. He knows what that is because when he was little, when I was going out of his room at night, I would have this little song and I would say, who's the best boy in the whole wide world? The whole wide world, the whole wide world. Who's the best boy in the whole wide world? Noah, 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 Noah. And he's like, what made, like, this is my son on the other end. He's like, what made you think of that? I'm like, I'm expecting something enduring back, you know? (laughs) Oh, dad, you're so sweet. He's like, what made you think of that? And I told him, I think about that kind of stuff all the time. That's how God loves us. He loves us and we're constantly on his mind. Every single hair on your head, the scripture says, he knows how many hairs are on the head of 7.8 billion people. You can take that principle a little further and this number is more staggering than the hair on your head. He knows how many atoms your body is made up of, how many molecules at the molecular level he knows. Isn't that amazing? That's how much he loves us. The scripture says that he calls us the apple of his eye. The apple is the pupil. The first thing you see, the thing you focus on, like we're the apple of God's eye. We're the thing that he's constantly focused on. We're the center. Like he's not, you know, you're not in his peripheral vision. You're not over here on the peripheral of God's radar. Every day, every moment of your life until you, you know, pass into the other part of of our existence in eternity, we are constantly on his mind and we are the focus of his attention simultaneously. Isn't that crazy? There are times I can only think of one or two people at a time or, you know, I I can't do that. God has the ability to think of us all so intimately, not because we're some assignment he has, but because he loves us that much. I want to share a few scriptures with you. The first one, everybody probably knows this scripture. If you're new to the faith, maybe you don't, but this is what today is really kind of built on is God loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So here's, here's what God, it's one thing if somebody says like, hey, I love you. And Shay does this to me all the time and I, it irritates me because I'm like, she wants me to quantify her love or, or my love. Any, any other wives do that? When you say, I love you, how much? <sighs> I love you to the heights and depths and breadths that, you know, my soul. You know, like, how, how do you quantify love? Like, you, I love you. I love you. But look at this scripture because God quantifies and qualifies his love. He doesn't just say, God love the world. He quantified it. He added value to the love. He said, I love the world so much. How how much? How much? So much that this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to take the absolute most valuable thing that I have and I will trade it for you. I'll substitute it for you because you're broken, you're messed up, you're a sinner. Maybe not now, but at one point we all were. And he said, I will take my most valued possession, my son, and I will substitute it for you. That's how much he loved us. Like, I don't think if you, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever seen laid eyes on the Mona Lisa, the masterpiece. I, I had the privilege of looking at it behind that steel, uh, the, the, the steel and the glass and the bulletproof glass. And, you know, it's got guards and everything around it in the Louvre Museum there in Paris. And you're looking at this. I don't think anybody would be out there, you know, taking a, we don't do these nowadays, but a Polaroid, you know, prints the picture out and go like, hey, can I trade this Polaroid for the Mona Lisa? Why? Because that's priceless. Like it, they will add a value, but really you can't add a value to that. Nope, that sounds like lunacy for something like that. But that's basically what God did. He took something that was invaluable, that it was, it was priceless and he took it and traded it for us. I want you to look at this next one. Romans uh, 8, 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell. Man, somebody ought to get excited about that. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That's how much he loves you. He is not, God ain't ain't in the, uh, well, that's just one that got away. You know, when you, if you've ever been out fishing, and you, you, I can remember those days when I would be fishing with my dad and it'd be like, you know, it, you have this big fish and you're trying to get it in, reel it in, reel it in, reel it in. And it's like, ah, oh, it just got away. I mean, we didn't dive in the lake, go to look for it. We threw the line back in again. You might, you might not. But this is how God is. God loves us so much that he is not going to let us get away if it depends on him. I want you to listen to this. By no power in the sky above or the uh, earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that God is of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what I want to share with you today. This is the key to the message that you can take home with you. Like we're the reason for Christmas. You and I are the reason for Christmas. You and I are the reason for the incarnation of God. You and I are the reason that he left glory, that he set aside his divinity and all divine privilege. Like he didn't stop becoming God or anything like that. He just simply said, I'm going to go and I'm going to win them back. I'm going to pay the price the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I'm going not as God. I can't go down there as a superhero. That's not special. He had to come and do it. And he set all of his divine privilege aside. 
He's just going to do this as a human because he wanted to show you and me that if he could do it, you and I can do it. We're the reason that we celebrate Christmas. Yes, Jesus is the reason, but we are the reason. If we had never sinned, if we had never fallen, if God had not loved us so much with this just crazy love, then he never would have come. And the first coming of our Lord would have never happened. But it did happen because the scripture says that we all like Adam have fallen. And we all are like those sheep who run off and they're disobedient and they, they are lost. We all are like that. And so we had to have a savior to come and save us again. And we are the reason that he came and wrapped himself in flesh. We are the reason that Christmas is really celebrated. We are. Aren't you glad? Because here's something I want I, I to share with you too. Is that uh, God's value of us. God's value. I'm going to go back. Let me do it. God's value of us far exceeds our estimation of our own selves. Think about this for a second. If any of y'all grew up in an abusive home like I did, if any of you grew up and you had any kind of abuse in your family, like sexual abuse or physical abuse or verbal abuse, and many times all those all kind of can come together. But I remember growing up and I would hear things spoken over me that were so derogatory and, uh, you know, just they tore me down. So I grew up with this extremely low self-esteem. And what happens is if you're not careful, an orphan spirit will attach itself to you. And I didn't even know what an orphan spirit was until I started, I heard somebody, Leif Hetland, start teaching about it. And I'm like, I, that is me. And I grew up with this orphan spirit. And an orphan spirit will make you feel worthless, devalued, like nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. You're on your own. Nobody's going to look out for you, but you, you're not safe around these people. You better stay away from them. They don't even want you around anyway, because you're pathetic and sorry. And it just, it just loads it on. I remember the day when I was a kid. I remember when I partnered with that orphan spirit. See, I'd been sexually abused. Many of you guys uh, may know this, but I was sexually abused. And uh, my half-brother who abused me and another neighborhood kid who had abused me, they were same age. And what happened is he did that. My brother did it to someone else in the community. And so my dad's business partner comes and he sits down at our table and he says, I, I need to talk, George, Betty, I got to tell you something that's been going on. And he begins to tell them the story of how my uh, half brother had abused their children. And as a little, I don't know, I was six or seven years old, maybe I heard, you know, I'm eavesdropping because, you know, he comes in and it's all dramatic. You know, I'm all about drama. I want to, you know, I grew up in a family full of drama. So I'm like, Ooh, what's going on? And I, and I can remember I slid down against the wall and I'm just kind of backed up against the wall listening to this story. And I'm thinking, oh God, thank you. Now, I wasn't a Christian. My family weren't Christians. This is all out of a 
outside of my context or understanding of God. But I thought, oh, thank God. Now they know and they're going to come and they're going to they're going to say, hey, we leave you with him all the time. Has he ever done this? You know, tell us, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, thank you. I just felt this relief come over me. But they never came. They never asked. They never followed up. And an orphan spirit moved in. I kept waiting. The next day, I kept waiting. The next week, I kept waiting. But this little voice inside of my head, I remember the day that I heard the voice. And the voice said, hey, they're not coming. You're on your own. You're all by yourself. Nobody's going to watch out for you. Nobody cares about you. They wouldn't even believe you if you told them. Keep your mouth shut. That's what an orphan spirit does. And an orphan spirit, it, it gave me an estimation. What he was doing, the enemy was doing to me, is he knew my value. He knew my value. But an orphan spirit or any demonic spirit will lie to you. I love those scriptures we just read a few minutes ago. It says that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I hadn't even met God yet. I wouldn't meet him until I was 15. I hadn't met God at six or seven years old. He died for me in that messed up state. I was angry at God. After I started learning a little bit about God, I was angry at God. God, how could you let something like that happen? I was a little kid. There was nobody there to protect me. Like I have this low self-esteem, this insecurity, all of this stuff that God had uh, uh, seemingly allowed me to go through that like, man, you put me through all of this and I didn't have a context where I had anybody telling me anything, but there were little glimpses here and there. And I remember, and some of the people that gave me these glimpses were teachers, so if you're a teacher in here, don't ever underestimate the value of the words that come out of your mouth. None of the teachers, none of the teachers taught me these things and went, oh, hang on, Rife, I got a word from the Lord for you. I'm like, if they had, I wouldn't have known what it was or who the Lord was anyway. They just Spoke, and this is the spirit of prophecy. The scripture says the spirit of prophecy is encouragement at its base form. I remember in the second grade, Miss Edwards, I remember second grade teacher, she taught me this. She said, Rife, you treat others so well. Because I've always been a kind-hearted, little tender-hearted kid. And she said, Rife, you, you treat people so well. You treat your classmates so well. And she said, you know, the golden rule is, we know that, most of us know it, the golden rule says, treat other people like you want to be treated. Well, she's a genius. She's a poet. Guess what? I didn't know until, you know, second grade to uh, uh, ninth-ish grade 
And one day my pastor, we got saved and we're in this church and he, he's reading and he comes across this verse and it says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm like, hey, I've heard that before. You know, all of a sudden my wheels start spinning and rewinding. Hey, Miss Edwards said that. I found out later that Miss Edwards was just this godly Christian teacher. She went to First Baptist Church and I ran into her at some graduation there, you know, years later. And I'm like, who knew? Who knew? This woman was on assignment and she was speaking prophecy. In the fifth grade, I had one of my teachers, Mrs. Carolyn Kurtz. She was talking to me and she was, she was prophesying over me. And we were in this little program and it was on like the roaring 20s. You know, we were talking about uh, the time right before the Great Depression where everybody was partying big in the roaring 20s. And I had this little speaking part and it was like we were, me and this girl in the class, we were these news commentators. And remember, this is pre-Jesus. I don't know Jesus till I'm 15. And so Miss Kurtz, she comes up and she's just complimenting us on our, on our parts. And she says, you guys are doing a great part. You know, little Sally, what a great job you're doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, encouraging her. And she said, and Rife, you, you're doing so good. She said, you, you have a voice that one, you could re- make a really great preacher. I knew what a preacher was. I looked at her like she was crazy. Like, what? Because I live outside of a context of God, or so I thought. See, we never really live outside of a context of God. I thought I did. Some of you might think you are. But when people are just lost, they're not lost. See, I truly believe, this is just my own theory. I truly believe Because the enemy is so smart. I'm talking about Satan. Satan is incredibly intelligent. He's a genius. Why shouldn't he be? He was created by God the Father. He has a vast amount of knowledge. He has a vast amount of uh, kingdom history that we really don't know a whole lot about. We don't know how long he was in existence in that, in that position in heaven. We don't know what all happened there, but he's got a lot, he, he, he knows a lot of behind the scenes of how heaven operates and things. He has seen God raise up great men and great women throughout time. He's seen David and what he looked like as a shepherd. The, the prophet didn't even recognize David as the anointed king. Are, are you following me? If you guys know these stories, I don't have time to go into them. But the enemy, he, he's seen the Sauls. He's seen uh, the uh, Pauls. He's seen uh, the Davids. He's seen the Solomons. He's seen uh, the Peters. He's seen all, he's seen Jesus. He's seen all of these very anointed people come up on the scene. And so, you know, it doesn't take a brain uh, scientist to look and just put the pictures together. Oh, that's what it looked like when Jesus was being raised up. See, there are people that didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. He's just a little kid of Mary and Joseph. Now they knew because of the way he came into being. But the average people didn't know. 
And there was a time, but Jesus knew, God knew, Satan knew. He started, he, he knew what it was like when David started to raise up. He knew the anointing on that person's life. And this is what, what happened in every part of those people's lives. The enemy began to raise up a standard against them. In other words, the enemy began to form weapons against them. The enemy can smell the anointing on you. Just listen to me. The enemy knows when you're anointed before a lot of times you know you're anointed. I truly believe, going back to this is my theory, I truly believe that God chose me at an early age. I believe he chooses people at early ages from the foundation of the world. And he chooses people at early ages or that, you know what I'm trying to say. And at early ages, you begin to manifest. When a little baby is born, they, they're not manifesting everything they're capable of. They're just basically laying there eating and pooping. But that's not all they're capable of. Like one day that person could design a new airplane, but the little baby, but he only poops and pees and eats. But he will manifest in time. And as he grows, he will begin to do things that are like, that's just not, you know, at, at your age and different things. Our children, at a very early age, we would see things that they did and we're like, oh, dude, they are just really gifted at that. And so we would try to encourage that part. Well, the enemy, he'll see when you start manifesting things and you can even begin manifesting them before you're saved. You follow me? Two out there for you? You with me? You don't know you're anointed, but God has anointed you. But the enemy's seen this before. He's, oh, I've seen this in David. I've seen this in Samuel. I've seen this in Peter. I've seen this in Bartim uh, uh, Bartholomew. I've seen this in these guys. I've seen this in Esther. I've seen this in Ruth. I've seen this in Naomi. I've seen this in these women. And the enemy, when he begins to see that, his goal is to extinguish you before you can ever realize the manifestation of who you really are. He did it with Moses, tried to wipe them out. He did it again with Herod, tried to wipe the prophetic generation out, the Messiah. He did it. And hey, I, I don't care where you are. If you're a Christian and you support abortion, you need to get in touch with God about that. That I'm not telling you that's a political thing. Uh, that, that's, that's bull. That's what the world makes it. This is a God thing. You know what abortion is doing? It's another attempt to wipe out a prophetic generation. That's what it is. That's what it is. Modern day abortion is nothing more than what uh, Herod did and what Pharaoh did. I'm telling you, we've got to fight that. We, we cannot allow that to, and, and there's a Supreme Court thing going on right now, Roe versus Wade. If I'm making some religious people mad, I hate it for you. God loves us and we end up devaluing, underestimating. That's what that whole abortion thing has done. 
We don't value life. We don't value life. What we do is we value lust. My body, my choice, lust makes me the object, the subject, in other words. Lust makes me, it's all about me. Love doesn't do that. I mean, there are people in our church that the doctors told them, your baby's not going to live. You need to, you need to abort it. They didn't because they valued the life. Well, he's going to come and he's going to have all kind of problems. He's going to, if he even remotely survives outside of the womb, like he's not going to live a normal life. Dude, that's the most cutest baby. You know, he's a mess. He's the cutest baby on the planet. No offense to any other babies in the house. You know, they are all cute, you know, but they have caused us to underestimate the value of life. And what the enemy will do is he'll take experiences that you and I have been through. He'll cause you to underestimate yourself. Now, the scripture does tell us don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But don't you think of yourself more highly than you should think. But it doesn't say that when it comes to our thoughts, God's thoughts towards us. We got to get the way that, not how we think about ourselves. How does God see me? How does God view me? And that is where everything becomes, uh, you know, really for us to make, to make sense. So I want to read Luke, these first seven verses, and it's in the 15th chapter Are you there? All right. And so it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Stop for a second. Tax collectors, they're like the bottom of the barrel. You know, they're like politicians. They're like, you know, these are people that are not well liked in the community and sinners of all kinds. These are people that have gathered around to hear Jesus. And then it says, but the Pharisees, everybody say, but the Pharisees. But the Pharisees had a problem with this. The Pharisees are the religious folks and the teachers of the law. And they muttered this, that this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And then Jesus, he told them this story, this parable. And he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. All right, so we're together. You got a hundred, but one of these little crazy monsters, you know, just wanders away. All right, and he says, doesn't he, the shepherd, leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Listen, this is so important right here. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. There's so many things right there that I just want to unpack a couple. He leaves it in open country, like open country where they're susceptible to danger, wolves. I mean, they're right out in the open. They're not hidden. They're not stalled. They're right out in the open. Why would he leave the 99 in danger? And here's the thing. When we are mature in Christ, 
and we know our identity, we are not in danger. The enemy might form some weapons against you. And I'm telling you what, church, listen to me. It's time for us to grow up into our identity of who we are. Like we, we're never alone. We have all of these, these uh, things at our arsenal these, these weapons that we can use, these tools that we can use, that you and I can be in an open field, spiritually speaking, and say, you know, bring it on. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to fight. I love how I think Brian Smith told me uh, that, that uh, you, it, you were in a scenario and, and this lady said something like, uh, don't start none, there won't be none. Remember that? Like, that's how I am with the devil. Don't start none and there won't be none. Like, I ain't looking for a fight but if you, if, you, if you come up on me and you want to fight, we're going to throw down and I am going to win. I am going to win. And I'm not saying that arrogantly because I know who's right here with me. Emmanuel, God with us, is right there with me. And so it's like, I don't want to fight. I'm a lover, not a fighter. You know, I truly am. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't like conflict, but you, you want some conflict? Don't, don't come up on me, devil, because I will come back at you. And I know just like David said, you come to me with whatever weapons you have, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. So, 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 so my sword's bigger than your sword. My rock's bigger than your rock. My, my gun's bigger than your gun. My bomb's bigger than your bomb. And so... And so anyway, he says, um, verse five, I believe is where I am. And when he finds it, so he goes and he finds the sheep. He's not gonna give up. He's gonna find that sheep. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Where? On his shoulders. Say it with me, on his shoulders. That's important. And goes home. Then he, then he calls his friends and neighbors he calls them all together and he said, rejoice with me for I've found my lost sheep. And then he calls his, uh, so after he's called all his friends and said that, he says, I tell you in the same way, in what way? The same way. What way though? You have to go back and read what we just read. Cause he says all of what I just said, the same way the father is going to celebrate you. We're going to look and break that down in just a second, what the same way means. And he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 religious persons who do not need to repent. So look, Jesus is the shepherd. He goes and finds that sheep. Brings it back on his shoulders. Tells all of his friends, hey man, he's texting them while he's coming to the house. You know, he's texting them. Hey, Brian, come over. Hey, Alan, come over. Hey, hey, Sharice, come over. Come on. You know, Bridget, come on. We're fixing to have a party. Did you know that God celebrates Christmas? He celebrates Christmas. He celebrates every time a person is saved. Every time a person is saved, an angel doesn't get its little bell in heaven. You know, like the story, you know, ding, somebody got their wings. No, every time somebody gets saved, the angels come into this party and, and they're celebrating because a lost one has now been found. And so... I want to show you this, all right? So how much does God love us? Real quick, 
And then we're going to end our service this morning just by singing a, an old song. Glenna told me it's not old, it's classic. <laughs> how much does God love us? We just heard how he will go after us. How much does he love us? Number one, he actively pursues us. Listen, the sheep is lost. The sheep, the sheep don't know it's even lost. The sheep's not thinking about getting back to the herd. The sheep is doing the sheep's thing. How many times, like we who are sheep, have gone astray? How many times are we just doing our own thing in life? This will bring some hope to some folks here this morning. I want you to listen to this. There are people in our families Come on, listen to me. There are people in our families that they're doing their own thing. There is loss. We consider them lost. They're, they're not thinking about God, but God's thinking about them. And God is pursuing them. God's putting people in their places like he put a, a, a Miss Edwards in my path. He put a Miss Hall in my path. I didn't tell you about her. He put a Miss Williams. I didn't tell you about her. He put, he put a, a Miss Carolyn Kurtz in my path and that's just four of them. But he put those people in my path. Why? Because God was pursuing me when I wasn't pursuing him. Y'all have some kids. You have some brothers and sisters, maybe even some dads, moms uh, out there that they're not pursuing God, but I'm here to tell you God is pursuing them. And listen, God is pers persevering and he's patient. Now we're not. If I had my way, it's like, it, we, we need to get this done. We got to get it done. And many times people will be so impatient that they'll, they'll try to witness to folks out of season. And it will not work because they're not ready for it. When God ain't called you to save anybody, he's called you and me to witness, to just witness, just be a light. Like that second grade kid that I was, she was letting me know I was being a light. You're so kind to your classmates, Rife. You're such a good kid. Like all we have to do is love people. Gotta put that political stuff aside. You got to put the different things aside that divide us. Doesn't mean that you can't still hold true to your values. I'm going to do it every day, but I'm still going to love people of different faiths, of different sexual orientations, of different uh, religions and, and, and family values. I'm still going to love them. God pursues and he's very persevering. The scripture says he'll look for that lost sheep and he won't go out looking for the lost sheep and say, man, I, I, I did my best. I'm just tired. I'm going home for the day and I've been out all week looking for that stupid sheep. I'm done. It's, it's just one of them. That's not how God is. He, the scripture says he pursues until he finds it. What we need to be praying is God when they find, when you find them. When you find them, God, may they be receptive to your hearkening. Hark the hair, you know, hearkening of your spirit. May they be receptive. This is what else. God, he's not only those things, but God protects us. 
What does he do? He puts that sheep on his shoulders. I'm telling you what, you're resting and I'm resting on the shoulders of God. Why? Why? I mean, why is he carrying the sheep back? Because that sheep has been out there. It's been alone. He's carrying the sheep. This sheep ain't going nowhere. And nothing's going to mess with the sheep. I'm, I'm just telling you, think about this. The sheep, whoever he or she is in your family, and it might be you, when he has rescued them, he will carry them. And no weapon formed against that person is going to prosper. Why? Because the master is carrying them on his shoulders. Ain't no wolf going to come up in there. There's nothing that's going to attack him. You're not going to come up on Jesus. The shepherd. Why? How, you know, the shepherd, he's got the staff. Like let a wolf try to come up in there. You know, he'll, he'll go all crazy, ninja, mixed martial arts on them, you know, whacking them. Because when we look at Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. I used to think, how can a rod, because a rod is made for whacking folks at well, he ain't whacking us. He's whacking the enemy. He's fighting the enemy off, holding him off. And so, man, God, he's protecting our loved ones that are lost. And God is pursuing them. Don't you let the enemy tell you that God has, has lost sight of them or they're too far from God or even that you're too far from God. You're not and they're not. That ought to bring some hope to our soul. And then these last few things, God brings us to a safe place. The scripture says that he brings us home. Why don't the ladies y'all come and we'll get ready to sing this and pray out. God brings us to a safe place. The scripture says he brings us home. He doesn't, he doesn't take us and drop us off at a, another person's house. He doesn't put us in the stable. He brings us home. And in community. He puts them back in the flock. He doesn't get ostracized. He doesn't get, you know, well, you got to be over here and it's going, you, you ain't going to be able to come back with the flock until you get your act together and, and, and you walk through 18 steps to come back and be a good sheep. No, he's just welcomed in. That's what God does for us because he loves us that much. And then this is, there's, I think this is the last one. It says that God throws a party and he gives us the place of honor. When you and I get saved, God throws a party. It's in heaven. That's something that, you know, you can think about later. But there's truly a celebration that goes on when people come to the knowledge of God. They come to Christ. But here's the thing. That at the party, Jesus is not the guest of honor at that party. You and I are. We're the ones that get the glory. We're the ones that get all of the affection. That's how much he loves us. What does honor look like? Honor can look like any number of things. It can look like you coming into your calling, you coming into your purpose, you finally meeting the person that God has for you because now you're found. It could mean so many things, but God is honoring you because at the party, what do people get at parties? Gifts. 
And there's gifts waiting on you that's part of this celebration.